This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Two big addresses in the last 24 hours, President Barack Obama giving his final speech in office, and then this morning, Donald Trump's first press conference since the election. On the line with us to talk about the seismic shifts coming to Washington is Republican Congressman Mike Kaufman. He represents Colorado's 6th District, which includes Aurora. He's also a member of the House Armed Services Committee. And welcome back to the program, Congressman. Oh, thanks for having me. I want to start with the fact that intelligence agencies have said Russia meddled in the U.S. presidential election apparently in an effort to help Trump get elected. Now there's an uncorroborated report that one, Trump's campaign coordinated with the Russians, and two, that the Russians have dirt on Trump that could make him vulnerable to blackmail. The information was persuasive enough, apparently, that it was shared with both Trump and President Obama. What's your reaction to the latest developments? Well, I'm just, I'm not, I'm not familiar with it, but the, so a couple of things. First of all, I do think that there are, I can tell you, as, as an Iraq War veteran, I think sometimes the, the intelligence at the highest levels tends to be politicized uh, to make a certain point. But at the same time, I think that the Russians are a tremendous threat, and I think that we shouldn't. Um, I, I think we need to look into every possibility for what they're doing, and so I think that they're. I just have a real concern uh, about Russia, and it runs much deeper than the president-elect. You believe that intelligence, even from the highest echelons, you say, can be politicized. Uh, what, what makes you say that? Oh, my gosh. Uh, first, as, a, as an Iraq War veteran, just to lead the intelligence and the lead-up to the Iraq War, uh, as a member of the Armed Services Committee, the lead-up to uh, uh, the U.S. Uh, military incursion into Libya for regime change and what we were told there uh, and what we found out afterwards. And recently, not that long ago, we found out that at the senior levels in the Obama administration, that they were cooking the intelligence on, on ISIS uh, to make them look less formidable and that we were making more progress than we really were. And so we're constantly looking into these things. And I hope that uh, that's, that's just something that needs to be cleaned up. Uh, certainly the rank and file, the intelligence community, uh, and, and the raw information they put forward is good. I think when, it, when it's put together in, in, in trying to establish a fact pattern to prove a, a particular thesis, I think sometimes it becomes questionable and politicized. This was the consensus of several different agencies. Does that change your perspective in any way? No, and I, it really doesn't. But at the same time, I mean, just because I'm distrustful of intelligence agencies and have been for a very long time, and uh, in, in the fact that they've been politicized on the right and the left, uh, I think they were politicized during the Bush administration as well. That doesn't uh, disregard the fact that I, I do think that Russia is a, is a real threat to the United States, to our security interests, and I don't, and I, and I think that they try, uh, I think they're, they're, they try a lot of what I would call hybrid-type tactics where uh, not true military, um, you know, not using true military tools as we know them in the conventional sense, but, but using, you know, uh, sort of, Information management, psychological operations, uh, cyber, you know, cyber tactics uh, to achieve their ends. And so uh, while, I, while I'm somewhat suspicious of, of intelligence agencies, that doesn't dismiss the fact that we have to take Russia seriously and we have to look into every possible allegation as to what they may have uh, done or, or may be doing. 
The House Armed Services Committee has cybersecurity certainly in its purview. And in past years, you sat on a special cybersecurity task force. Uh, Would you lay out specific steps you think the U.S. needs to take in regards, I suppose, to cybersecurity in general and specifically as it relates to Russia? Well, I think we're behind on cybersecurity, and it's it's certainly Russia and China, uh, you know, have very advanced operators uh, in in terms of their ability to conduct uh, cyber operations. uh, uh, And and I think that when trying to protect the critical infrastructure of the United States uh, and trying to to, um, certainly protect um, our own, uh, you know, government systems, uh, we have the VA system got hacked. Uh, by, you know, a, a state-sponsored entity. Uh, OPM got hacked by a state-sponsored entity in terms of, of very critical files uh, that were removed. And so it's, it, it is, um, it's something that we haven't paid enough attention to that we really need to. OPM is the United States Office of Personnel Management. Right. Are there any questions that you feel must be answered about this before Inauguration Day? No, I, I, think, I think we should proceed. I don't think it, but I, I think that we should, uh, you know, all allegations need to be investigated, and, and nothing should be uh, dismissed. Um, and uh, I just really think, I think we understand, because I think we understand, we have to understand what Russia may or may not be doing. But um, I'm just, I think there are very significant threats to the United States, and I don't think we should take them lightly. During your re-election campaign, you openly opposed Mr. Trump, even though you're both Republicans. And uh, here's some uh, of a campaign ad from this summer. I'm a Marine. For me, country comes first. My duty is always to you. So if Donald Trump is the president, I'll stand up to him, plain and simple. What have you heard Trump say, perhaps since Election Day, if anything, that you will stand up to? Well, I think um, I'm concerned about his uh, infrastructure, um, uh, spending, uh, which is massive. (laughs) And so uh, I'm going to take a look at that proposal when it comes down. I think immigration reform, I I think certainly I've got concerns about what he said during the campaign trail. Uh, He seems to be softening his position now uh, on on immigration, but I I think I'm certainly going to be watching that. There's no question that I'm for uh, securing the border. There's no question... I'm for immigration uh, policies that, that help grow our economy. But I'm also uh, for keeping families together, and I, and I just haven't heard that from him yet. And, and so that's certainly going to be something that I'm going to press this administration for. Let me ask a specific uh, in that regard about DACA, Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, which grants protection to undocumented people brought to the U.S. as children. Uh, Trump has said he wants to do away with DACA. Uh, what, what's your stance there? Well, I think I, I think it has to be preserved, and, and, and I'll certainly fight the administration on that. He has shown an opening, a softening uh, on the DAC position, but hasn't been explicit in terms of of, of what he would rep- what, what he would support in terms of replacing it with. But I think that uh, certainly that's a priority for me uh, is uh, making DACA permanent. I want to move on to health care. You have supported efforts to repeal Obamacare, the Affordable Care Act, which Trump again today called a disaster. You tweeted, repealing and replacing Obamacare will lead to a patient-centered health care system that is of higher quality and affordable for Americans. 
Uh, we looked this up, and your district has about 32,000 people enrolled in the state's health exchange. What would you tell them if they're concerned about their coverage should the current system go away? It looks like when well, the think, current uh, system First of all, goes. I think it's going to take a while for, for that transition to take place. It will be in, in, in several parts. I think the first part will be that the what we call budget reconciliation, and that is a tax and spending parts of, of Obamacare, and we will not move forward with that without a replacement for those elements that are in budget reconciliation. And then I think the second phase, the uh, transitional phase, uh, will be uh, in, in the powers that the administration has, that, that um, the Affordable Care Act is replete with uh, the secretary of HHS shall, you know, uh, shall do this or, or shall come up with this or, or may do this. And so it, delegate, it, it, it essentially delegated a lot of responsibility to the administration. And so there are, a lot of the policy changes can be done uh, administratively. And then third, that we'll, we will need uh, a, a bipartisan help, uh, certainly cert- with certain elements, uh, particularly the regulatory aspects of, uh, of, of insurance, uh, that, w- that we will need uh, bipartisan support to move that aspect forward. There has been robust interest, it appears, in signing up for health insurance on the state's exchange. So for those who uh, are taking part in open enrollment, You'd say move ahead and trust that that coverage will be around for what, a year, two years? Oh, I think the, here's the issue. I think the fundamental issue is, is yes, certainly there are subsidies available and the, and the subsidies will, will remain. They may, may be in some kind of refundable tax credit, uh, but using the tax code uh, in, a, in a way of, of helping those individuals. But the fact is that we've had, I think we're at 20, a little over 20% uh, annual increase right now. Uh, on the insurance exchange in terms of premiums, the out-of-pocket costs are just unbelievable uh, under, under um, the Affordable Care Act and the insurance exchanges, uh, in, not just in Colorado but across the country. And many states are, are experiencing even much higher premiums than Colorado. I just fundamentally believe we can do better. We can do better with uh, the um, Medicaid uh, expansion and, and how... Uh, we're helping people probably more state flexibility there. Uh, I think we can do better uh, in turn with the insurance exchange in terms of containing uh, premium increases. And I think we, there's no question we have to preserve the um, consumer protections that exist in, in the Affordable Care Act, many of which uh, existed in prior uh, law uh, at the state level in, in the state of Colorado. And that is, you know, the ability to cover people with pre-existing conditions, the ability for them to have portability from one plan uh, uh, to the to the next, uh, the notion of some kind of adjusted community rating, not discriminating on the basis of gender. So I think that there is a, um, you know, it, this is a fundamentally about improving upon uh, what what is there. I want to wrap up with a question about the Department of Veterans Affairs. Trump announced this morning that he's nominating David Shulkin as head of it, who's currently Undersecretary of Health at the VA. And let's talk about the construction of the new VA hospital in Aurora. That's your district. Investigations have found mismanagement has led to cost overruns, delays, other problems. We have about a minute left. You've suggested the FBI investigate. What precisely would you want the FBI to do? Well, the FBI did do a referral to um, the Justice Department. And so uh, to, how do you lose a billion dollars? 
I mean, were there in fact, uh, how did that occur? Um, I think that certainly there, are, uh, one of the questions certainly that arose was the fact that, arose was the fact that, that, that they had, uh, that senior VA officials had consistently lied to Congress in the United States under oath. And so that's certainly one of the issues that need to be looked at is the fact that they've, they've, the, the fact that they lied under oath uh, and perjured themselves. And I think people need to be prosecuted for that. And I think it's clear that it did occur. And so I hope the Justice Department uh, moves forward uh, with uh, prosecuting them. And uh, because otherwise, Congress of the United States, on behalf of the taxpayers, can't do their oversight role. Uh, I put forward um, uh, legislation and, and drove the policy forward to strip the VA of their construction management authority. And, and so in the Aurora VA uh, hospital, uh, the replacement facility, uh, that is now uh, managed by the Army Corps of Engineers. Right. So, uh, I've, I've got confidence in them where I didn't have an, uh, with the Veterans Administration. Republican Mike Hoffman represents Colorado's 6th Congressional District, which includes Aurora. When we come back, the new at-large CU regent on whether the CU system should prepare for a day when there's no state funding for colleges and universities. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. There's a diversity problem in higher education, including at the University of Colorado, according to our next guest. In particular, she means diversity of thought, specifically getting more conservative voices on campus. And Heidi Ganahl has the power to do something about it as a new regent for the CU system. She won the hotly contested statewide race and was sworn in last week. Ganahl may be best known for founding the doggy daycare chain Camp Bow Wow. And uh, Heidi, welcome back to the program. Oh, thanks for having me, Ryan. Uh, I also want to ask about making higher education more affordable in Colorado. That'll come up in just a bit. But let's begin with this concern I mentioned. Do you see a liberal bias at CU? Well, I think that's a national problem, not just a problem at CU and and one that uh, has been a hot topic lately in the news for the past year or so. So it's something that uh, I certainly want to dig into a bit and address and, and make sure that students are hearing both sides of the story. It's very important to me. Where do you see that bias manifest? Well, I think it's uh, it's in a lot of different ways. It's um, whether it's in the classroom or it's on the campus through groups that are hosting a booth on campus or the, even the voter registration, kind of the, the spirit around that was uh, was interesting. And then also just, um, you know, generally what students are hearing and feeling in the college environment and also the press. But I, I do believe our universities are not the place to limit free speech and thought. They're the place for feisty debate about tough issues and and letting students make their own decisions about what they believe. What evidence do you have that it's happening in the classroom? I, I hear from a lot of students. And as I worked on the campaign trail for the last year, I mean, that was probably the number one topic I heard about besides the high cost of college was what is going on on our college campuses and why are our kids coming home from college telling us these stories about what's happening in the classroom or what's happening, you know, if they have a thought or a, a uh, an opinion that's not along the lines of what uh, everyone thinks they should think. And it's, it's a scary proposition and one that I dealt with personally. I have a senior at University of Oregon. My daughter goes there. And uh, I, I can count probably 20 times she's come home and told me stories about that. And it's very concerning. Is there a school that has taken this on and done so successfully that you think CU could emulate? 
Well, honestly, I think CU is doing some of the right things to address this issue and, and bringing, you know, lots of different uh, voices to the campus and the conservative chair program at CU Boulder is a great start. But there's a lot more work to do. And I think that uh, um, Robbie George at uh, the James Madison Institute at Princeton is a great example. And there's some pockets around the country that are doing good things, too. So I'm, I'm going to do a bit more research and talk to some folks around the country and go to some conferences to learn more about it. And so maybe in six months or a year, I'll have a better uh, a better view on that. Do you want to expound at all on what's happening at Princeton? Um, well, it's uh, it's a kind of like a think tank on the campus, but uh, the most popular um, part of the institute there is a class that is co-taught by a very liberal professor and a very conservative professor, and the kids love it. It's uh, it's always full. Um, there's always a waiting list to get a class, and that's just an example of how students really do want to hear both sides of the story and and have feisty debate about tough issues and, and have conversations about things that uh, you know they really need to figure out where they stand on. You did mention the fact that CU added a conservative thought and policy scholar. I'll say it's in its fourth year. And is that the the way to go about this, to create positions designed to be filled by people with conservative ideologies? Or are there other pathways, do you think? You know, I, th- I think it's a good idea. I think it's it's um, it's a good symbol for what we're trying to accomplish. But at the end of the day, every hiring decision um, should have um, the background of diversity of thought, of race, religion, of idea. Um, all of those things should go into who we bring onto our campus to teach our children or to run the campus. I think it's not just around political ideology, but diversity in general. And I think that's a very important thing that we need to continue to focus on and bring to the University of Colorado, as I know a lot of universities around the country are struggling with right now. So diversity does mean more than diversity in thought to you, for sure. Does it matter in educators' political persuasion in all disciplines, though? In other words, is it more important in political science, say, than mathematics? Uh, I mean, at some point, does this become the thought police in places where (laughs) political persuasion is is not as relevant? Well, we certainly um, don't want to go that far as as far as uh, talking about the thought police, but we certainly do want to look at every position on campus and making sure that we consider um, their... um, Oh, gosh, if they can be neutral and present a balanced view of whether it's mathematics or it's history or it's business or it's political science. I don't think it's just uh, focused on political science alone. Every position. Um, and, and you say that that's faculty. Is it staff, too? Is it students? Yes, yes, of course. All right. Have you given thought to a more fundamental question? That is, is it more likely liberals join higher ed than conservatives? Is it something of a pipeline issue in academia? Well, I certainly think that is um, part of the issue and and something that I've heard a lot about from conservative students on campus that don't really feel encouraged to move on to get their master's or Ph.D. or teach at the universities. Um, So I do I actually think it starts in K through 12 and having um, feisty collaborative debate, even among high schoolers and middle schoolers and talking about philosophies and and ways of um, approaching problems. And so I you know, I honestly hope that it's more of a general population discussion rather than just one that's tagged to higher ed. I think it's it's a societal issue, not just an issue for higher ed, but it does show up a lot more in higher ed. For context, I want to say that the Board of Regents at CU has been controlled by Republicans since 79. Republicans currently hold a, a 5-4 majority with your election. 
I want to ask you about an event going on later this month at two CU campuses uh, in Boulder and Colorado Springs. So they're each hosting a controversial speaker, a guy named Milo Yiannopoulos, who writes for Breitbart News. He was banned from Twitter for stirring up racist attacks online. His tour has a name I won't say on the radio because it uses a slur for gay people. He is openly gay himself. By all accounts, he's a provocateur. And uh, perhaps most troubling for some is that in an appearance at a different school, he singled out a student for abuse, a transgender student at the University of Milwaukee, Wisconsin. I am not suggesting that uh, Yiannopoulos is a mainstream conservative, but the groups sponsoring his tour are mainstream. Is CU going too far in hosting that speaker in particular on their campuses? Well, I think that student groups invited him and sponsored his appearance, and we need to recognize their right to bring a variety of speakers and events to campus. I mean, our, our campuses, especially CU, are places where open debate and discussion are encouraged, even from speakers that we disagree with or may have views that you know we don't all agree with. So I, I do understand that uh, the campus is working with different groups that are concerned about his appearance to put on an alternate event for students that uh, that want to participate in that. That might be a good option. Let me take this to an extreme, and I, I just want to be very clear that this is an extreme for argument's sake. If students want to wanted to invite the KKK on campus, should they be allowed to do that? Is there a, a place where you draw the line? Well, honestly, I think universities are places for learning about yourself and others in the world, and freedom of speech is a big part of that. Uh, I think part of robust debate and bringing that to our campuses is making sure that every square inch of our campus is protected by the First Amendment. And there are certainly ideas that most of us can't stand. But at the end of the day, I think, you know, if the KKK came to campus, I I doubt anyone um, or very many people would show up. And so hopefully uh, they, they wouldn't have much success in doing so. But you think they should have the right to have a presence on a CU campus? I think that student groups should have the right to sponsor any group that they want to bring to campus. I want to say that some other universities have disinvited this particular speaker, Milo Yiannopoulos, from coming to campus. Uh, CU Chancellor uh, Philip Stefano has acknowledged protests by students who don't want the speaker on campus. He said in a statement, as the chancellor, it is also my duty to uphold our dedication to free expression of viewpoints on the campus and to allow all student groups to host speakers of their choosing. Let's move on to another issue. Uh, see a region at large, Heidi Ganahl, about funding for higher education in Colorado and the affordability of attending CU. Students and their families are paying bigger portions of tuition than ever before, and the state is paying less. Colorado ranks near the bottom for higher ed funding in the country. Should CU plan for the day when there's just no state funding? I know it's already pretty minimal, but uh, should it prepare for zero? Well, I think we're at about, uh, we're a little under 6% right now. So yes, it's it's getting near that point. Um, I, I hope that's not the case. Uh, part of what I want to do as a region is continue to build relationships with Colorado legislators to maximize state funding and, and to talk about what a great return on investment higher education is for our state economy and for our children in Colorado. But I think we've got to do some things to prepare for less funding. And I think CU is doing a lot on that front. Um, I think they've kept tuition at the lowest level in a couple decades, and they have the new four-year freeze program at CU Boulder, which is a step in the right direction. On, on tuition, yeah. 
Yeah. But there's lots, I, I think there's lots of work to do there. And I think the region board, the board of regents acknowledges that. And so does President Benson and everyone's rolled up their sleeves and, and constantly trying to work on that issue. But my, it's a tough nut to crack. And it's been an issue mm-hmm. persistent for years, hasn't it? It has. And I think there's a lot of different ways to tackle it. Um, I've been reading up a lot on this over the last year. And I think there is, uh, you know, I have a business perspective. um, And and that's how I tackle this issue is look at, you know, you either have to create more revenue or drive down expenses. Those are the two levers you can pull. Mm-hmm. So I think we can focus on graduating students in four years to, so that will cost them less to get an education. I think we can leverage technology to drive down our costs. We can make it easier to transfer credits. So if kids come in from community college or get credits in high school, it's a bit easier to uh, apply those to your, to your higher education. Um, goals. And then I think we can prepare high school students better though, so that a third of new college students don't have to take remedial classes. That's a, a tough issue as well. What about on the revenue side? Do you risk making colleges and universities resemble for-profit companies? Well, I think right now, one thing CU is doing very well is breaking private fundraising records and, and creating that conversation with private donors and businesses about what a great investment it is to put uh, donations or invest in higher education and kids getting higher education or higher degrees. So I think that's something we need to keep doing. And we also need to continue to drive innovation through private-public partnerships. There's a lot of great examples at CU of that going on in the system. And uh, I think building a, a tighter bridge between businesses and K-12 through and higher education in our communities is really one of the ways you tackle this problem. When you say public-private partnerships, I gather you're talking about technology transfer, at least in part, the idea that research that comes out of an institution can be transferred uh, to the private sector. You make money on a particular technology or discovery, and that benefits financially the universities. Is that what you're getting at? That's one way to do it. Uh, the, the cool thing about the tech transfer program is it also benefits the student and the faculty. Everybody shares in the success of that that project. Um, a good example, I think, of a public-private partnership is the new cybersecurity program down at UCCS. I think that was a really neat way. Uh, Governor Hickenlooper worked on it, and President Benson worked on it, Chancellor Shockley worked on it, and it became a really good model for how we can do some of these things. Can you say just a few words about that for those unfamiliar with it? Yeah. So um, one of the the hot issues right now, of course, is cybersecurity. And our military is very interested in research on that front. And so is the private sector. And so are um, our universities around the country. And so they put together a uh, relationship between all three of those parties to create a program down at UCCS and some degree programs and uh, some some research programs that will focus specifically on cybersecurity. And Colorado Springs is a good place to do that with the presence of the military and uh, a lot of high-tech companies that are worried about that issue. So I'm excited to see how that grows and uh, where it leads us. But that's one way we've taken that approach at CU. Does the approach, though, favor larger institutions, say like CU Boulder, and disfavor those that are smaller and may not have as robust a technology transfer program or an ability to create those kinds of partnerships? Do you mean other universities, like smaller universities? Right, exactly. 
Yeah, I mean, I don't think so. I think in every community, it's in the community's best interests and the businesses in that community's best interest to make sure that they are getting kids get great degrees and and uh, giving them more education and training. So even the smallest of communities with a community college can partner with local businesses and local nonprofits in that in that community to make sure that kids are getting to college if that's what they want to do. I'd like to wrap up with a personal question. Um, You were named by Forbes, one of the 10 most promising entrepreneurs of 2014. This was in part because of your connection to Camp Bow Wow, having founded it. I'm curious why you wanted to run for the CU Board of Regents. What attracts you to this job? Well, I love CU. I graduated from CU Boulder, and I've been on various boards over the years, most recently the CU Foundation Board. But I've also been blessed to live the American dream, and and I care very much about our kids getting the same opportunity that I had to do what they love and to unleash their own American dream. And I truly believe education is the key to keeping that American dream alive. So after I sold my company, I was trying to uh, figure out how I wanted to give back or, you know, what what my next step was. And my involvement at CU, along with my focus on education and entrepreneurship, this was really a good next step for me to see if, uh, if this is a good way I could give back to the community community and the university that I love so much. Thanks for your time. Well, thanks for having me. Republican Heidi Ganahl won the hotly contested statewide race to become a new CU regent. She was sworn in last week. You can hear my earlier interview with her about the freak accident that changed the course of her life and led her to found that doggy daycare company, Camp Bow Wow, at cprnews.org. Just ahead, a graphic novelist takes on the issue of shootings by police. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Police shootings have left an impression on Denver comic book creator Alan Brooks. He says he wanted to write something about the issue, but from an unexpected perspective. So he added some science fiction. And in his graphic novel series, The Burning Metronome, characters described as explorers are stuck in a strange world of unfamiliar beings called humans. There are six issues altogether in the series, and this first focusing on police shootings and race relations. Alan, welcome to the program. Thank you. Why take on the issue of excessive force and race in this issue? Well, I think, uh, you know, it's a very present thing on the national, you know, the national radar. But I I feel like uh, sci-fi and art at its highest usually resonates with something, you know, that that is real in life, like some real issues. And since this is a present issue, I felt like uh, the best way to sort of attack it is to sort of, you know, put it in the story and kind of explore it from a different perspective. You are African-American. Was it cathartic to do this for you? Uh, You know, I think in some ways, yeah, yeah. uh, I've obviously had some experiences with it, but I, I think because it's become such a national thing now to try to explore it from different perspectives. So it was important to me to not just explore it from my own perspective and sort of to treat it in the way that a journalist would. So like, uh, you know, in the writing of the story, I talk with uh, friends of mine who are police officers to get their perspective. And then I did a little research on Blue Lives Matters and, you know, those kind of things to get all those kind of perspectives and try to work it into the story. I want to ask you about those conversations with 
friends of yours who are in law enforcement in a bit, but you describe The Burning Metronome, this series, as Mm. a, quote, murder mystery graphic novel with supernatural undertones. What's the Cliff Notes version of the first issue? Just to ground listeners in this story before I ask you more about creating it. Uh, Well, basically, uh, there's a guy who wakes up in a house, doesn't know how he got there. And we go through this kind of exploration. And as we're talking more, you know, we learn that he's a police officer. And he has to have conversations with the girl he meets in the house about some of the decisions he's made. And that sort of leads to sort of a climactic ending, you know. Uh, Okay, to these conversations then with friends of yours of of different perspectives, different walks of lives. How did they shape the story that you came up with? Well, I think um, if you're not a police officer, like it's easy to sort of be, to have your critique be without uh, a sense of the, the feeling of danger or fear that they might have. So in talking to people who are in those experiences or who happen to go into places where they don't know if they're going to be killed, um, it was important for me to understand what things they have to consider. And then with those in mind, how they feel about this sort of idea of police brutality coming a lot to the fore in media as a whole. I also think you explore well the regret um, or the the kind of torture, torturous space that they have to live with mm-hmm. after they make the decision yeah. to shoot or to not shoot. Well, thank you, first of all. <laughs> oh, you're welcome. Sure. <laughs> yeah, I think, uh, you know, I mean, you do have to make a snap decision. I don't think being a police officer is an easy job. Uh, I think because it's not an easy job, the the idea that any criticism lobbied at police officers is invalid, uh, I think that that's sort of a false way to go, you know, because just just by virtue of the job, you have power over somebody's life or death. So uh, who else should be held to a higher standard than that? You talked about science fiction being at its best when it tackles tough issues. Mm-hmm. Can you give me examples of sci-fi uh, on the screen, on the page, that have inspired you oh, over yeah, the years? Definitely. Uh, what is it in its highest form? Well, uh, Twilight Zone is definitely a big influence. You know, like, they were able to tackle a lot of social issues there uh, really powerfully. I don't think it's any coincidence that the first uh, interracial kiss on television was on Star Trek. Huh. You know? Yeah. It broke a lot of barriers, Star Trek. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, I mean, even on Twilight Zone, they used uh, an all-black cast in one of their first season episodes, which at that time was almost unheard of, you know, for an anthology series of that type. Um, I I think the beauty of sci-fi is that you can approach these issues from a different perspective. So, like, uh, you can look at it as, like, aliens or people in the future, people in the past, and it takes out the emotional charge which allows you to see it in just sort of a different context and maybe consider it in ways you might not have. Right. Sci-fi deals in a way in metaphor. Mm-hmm. And so if you have, and this is not true of your graphic novel, but if you have tentacled beings mm-hmm. struggling with whether or not to accept beings that have fewer tentacles, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, you get to deal with the, the question of acceptance and tolerance and all of that mm-hmm. uh, in a less literal and perhaps less painful way, I think is what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. This spring, you hope to release a book of all six issues. That's right. Subsequent ones focus on things like how people manipulate each other, mm-hmm. how insecurities can manifest. Why, uh, specifically within sci-fi, 
are these stories powerful as graphic novels? I think uh, there's a, a beautiful visual component with comic books specifically uh, that you don't get in prose novels and you don't get in movies. Uh, the, the, the element is that with comic books, the reader controls the speed. So, uh, Yeah, it, what do you mean by that? Explain in a that. sense, like, uh, so if you're watching a movie, uh, the pacing is just there, you know, uh-huh. watching a television show. In a comic book, you're reading it, you determine how long you dwell on these particular aspects. The, the reader has to be engaged in a different way. So, like, uh, with prose, readers completely, like, uh, you, you know, you come up with the images yourself. So you're, there's a level of engagement. Uh, but it's more collaborative with comic books. So somebody who's reading a comic book is filling in. They're creating the motion. So there's, like, you know, a number of pictures in the comic book. But the reader themselves are creating the motion in between, like, those panels and uh, I think there's just a different kind of involvement and engagement. Yeah, that's interesting. The rhythm is determined by the reader. I do want to ask about the title of this series, The Burning Metronome. Alan Brooks, we are speaking with the Denver comic book creator. What does it mean, uh, the, the Burning Metronome? Well, it's sort of an abstract meaning. I, I mean, uh, I like the idea of running out of time. Uh, and, you know, a metronome keeps time. And if it's on fire, of course, <laughs> and then uh, then the time's burning up on you. And, you know, I mean, uh, any any... Any story with a, a drama or anything has a, a ticking clock, you know, where things are running out. You have to get it done in this amount of time, you know. And so just the idea of the burning metronome and time's running out kind of creates a, an, an air of drama there. You made the first issue available online last year. Yes. What kinds of reactions did you get to this storyline about uh, police shootings? You know, it's been really positive. Uh, I think the balance that I tried to strike and telling the different perspectives in the story came through. So, uh, Did your law enforcement friends read in? Yeah, yeah, and they gave me positive feedback, which I wasn't sure if they would, <laughs> you know. Well, yeah, nerve-wracking to have them read it. Yeah, yeah, and uh, they felt like it was uh, fair, you know, and uh, entertaining. Like, they really, and they told me they were looking forward to other issues and uh, upcoming issues of the book, stuff like that, so. And the issues that they'll deal with. Yeah. <laughs> issues in every sense of the word. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. That is Denver comic book writer Alan Brooks. He collaborated with illustrator Dion Harris and Longmont designer Matt Strackbine for the graphic novel series The Burning Metronome. All six issues will be out later this spring, and you can see artwork from this first issue at cprnews.org. We'll be right back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. In 1884, a man named Evelyn Booth and his buddies left England on an adventure. They caroused, brawled, and shot their way across the USA. And they met a legend, Buffalo Bill Cody. Cody died in Denver this week in 1917. He's buried on Lookout Mountain. Evelyn Booth documented his time with Buffalo Bill in a blue leather diary. And it sat quietly at the Denver Public Library until an archivist there, Kellen Cutsforth, started to read it. Then he wrote a book, Buffalo Bill, Boozers, Brothels, and Bare Knuckle Brawlers. I spoke with Cutsforth in 2015 and asked why Booth and his buddies wanted to head west from England. One of the main reasons they come out here is to hunt. And uh, they want to capture a grizzly. And uh, today it would be considered trophy hunting. They do not end up in Colorado, however. Uh, Instead, after some hunting trips, they end up in 
New Orleans. Yes, in New Orleans, and right? there they at least come across someone associated with Colorado, and that's Buffalo that's Bill right. Cody. The, the West's favorite son. And whose grave is on top of Lookout Mountain, just west of Denver. Uh, what was the Wild West show like when Booth first went to see it? So the Wild West show and... Uh, for the listeners, uh, Bill never used the term show. It was always Buffalo Bill's Wild West because it was supposed to be a historic entertainment or a historic event. Oh, and he found uh, show to be dismissive. Yes, he did. Yes, he did. And so if you ever see a piece of memorabilia that has the word show in it, it is bunko. It is fake. So um, Buffalo Bill never used that. Uh, he always, like I say, saw it as a historic reenactment. But anyway, when Booth and his companions see the show... Uh, they're a little, again, disappointed because, one, it's raining the whole time in New Orleans. This is one of the reasons why Bill is having financial trouble at the mm. time because not, he's not getting many uh, spectators. And so they say, oh, they shoot very feebly and these sort of things. But um, they are uh, still impressed with Buffalo Bill that he has the ability to put something like in a, uh, an event like this together. And I think at one point, uh, Evelyn Booth and Buffalo Bill meet. Yes, and they uh, essentially engage in a shooting. Contest. Yes, they do. So uh, Buffalo Bill is a very good shot. He's been a buffalo hunter uh, for the railroad uh, in a previous life and a scout for the military and been engaged in uh, conflicts with Native Americans. And so he's a very good shot at this point, and so is Booth. And they have a shooting competition in front of 3,000 spectators and a competition, I might add, that the American wins, Buffalo Bill. Buffalo Bill wins, wins it, yes, right. by one one clay pigeon. And you uh, have acknowledged this, but these just aren't great days for Buffalo Bill. No, Otherwise, um, Evelyn Booth writes, I fear the Honorable Cody is having a bad time of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Audiences are, are small, as you say, in part because of the weather. Mm-hmm. And then a bunch of props and equipment had been lost in an accident. Right. So before Bill came to New Orleans, which is where they were going to winter because they thought the uh, weather would be much nicer in New Orleans than, say, wintering in somewhere north where you run into a lot of snow. They uh, decided to head south, and whilst heading south down the Mississippi River, uh, the boat crashed into another uh, vessel and sank, and they lost their equipage. They lost uh, uh, many antelope and other animals that are in the uh, show, and they a sum of about $20,000 of loss on the river. Goodness. Well, of course, I'm thinking of Evelyn Booth as a moneyed individual. Yes. And the natural question would be, does he bail out Buffalo Bill? Yes, he does. he does. Okay. So along with the poor number of spectators at the show um, in New Orleans, they lost about $60,000 there with uh, low ticket sales. So when Booth and Cody get together and become friends and have their shooting competition, Booth eventually then steps in and becomes a quarter owner of the show. And I found the agreement that the two signed huh. together um, where Booth gave money to Bill and became a quarter owner of, of the Wild West. Yeah, b- b- Bill is like $80,000. Yes, 80000 yes. And at that time, we remember, is, is 1884. So That's a lot It's of money. a deep, deep hole that he's in, yes. And uh, Cal and I have uh, been fascinated by Buffalo Bill's life, how he went from frontiersman to run don't call it a show, Don't Ryan. call it a show. Uh, reliving the 
glory days of the West, um, he'd won a Medal of Honor Correct. as a civilian scout during the uh, Indian Wars. Yeah. American Indians were part of this spectacle as well. Mm-hmm. What was the goal? What did he want to do to, for audiences? So he wanted to, because it was so unique, uh, the, the native peoples uh, had such a unique culture, had such a unique life um, and style and look and everything. He wanted to bring that to people that he had seen in the West when he was a scout, when he was um, a buffalo hunter. And he wanted to give them an opportunity to get off the reservation at this point and bring their culture to uh, audiences who had never seen it, audiences in the East, audiences overseas. And does he strike um, like more of a freak show note or of a respectful note? I It, it is a respectful note. Um, I think uh, in today's history, uh, you get a lot of revisionist history that sort of perhaps he exploited them or mm-hmm. something like that. But I, I, there's really no proof of that. Bill respected the native peoples. He paid them as well as he paid any of the cowboys, any of the vaqueros, any of the other performers who were in the show. Um, and he respected them when it was when they wanted to return to their homes and their families, they were allowed to return. Some critics, though, over the years have said of Buffalo Bill's Wild West that it was one of the original sources of negative stereotypes mm. perpetuated by Hollywood right, for right, decades. Right. And that though that might not have been Buffalo Bill Cody's intention, that might be the legacy. Yes, and and that's very true. That uh, you are correct. Uh, Edison's first images on the kinetoscope were of performers in Buffalo Bill's Wild West, and then many other Hollywood directors and authors liked those images, and they took them and they built it into what we know today. Well, it's interesting that you mention Edison. Yeah, because I wanted to share something with you. This is Buffalo Bill's voice. Yeah. We found an old recording. He is praising Thomas Edison for inventing the device that is recording his voice. It's pretty scratchy, as you might guess. It seems almost uh, uncanny that the voice in this place can be perpetuated and that he has sent out to the world his phonographs, which have given more entertainment and pleasure than any invention in the history of the world. Let me paraphrase there. Instead of saying his voice is being recorded, he says it's being perpetuated. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And he says that this device has given, you know, the world more entertainment and pleasure than any he can think of. The audio comes from the G. Robert Vinson Voice Library at Michigan State University. Mm -hmm. Um, After all your work, Mm -hmm. what is your sense of what Buffalo Bill was really like? Um, being a historian and, and, uh, and also a fan of Bill, um, you know, he respected his performers. Um, I, I think it's important to note one of his most, uh, popular, if not the most popular performers and highest paid in his show was a woman and he, uh, fought for women's suffrage. He respected the Native Americans that were in, that was in his show. Who who is and, the woman? Just, uh, oh, Annie Oakley. Annie Oakley. Yeah, that's okay. right. Yeah. It might Annie, be get her. your gun. Uh, I find uh, Buffalo Bill to be uh, uh, very respectful and almost uh, loyal to a fault, um, even though he was probably a bit of a playboy and probably messed around a little bit on his wife. But, right. Yes. <laughs> so this Englishman, Evelyn Booth, who mm-hmm. meets him. Um, it, does he help shore up 
Buffalo Bill Cody's career or fame or, you know, what what happens? Uh, uh, he gives him the shot in the arm that he needs in the very beginning of the show. Bill's able to sort of get back on his feet and then make a, a lot of the losses back by touring around the East Coast. And then Booth is one of many Englishmen who helped Bill hatch the idea of taking the Wild West overseas. And that is Kellen Cutsforth. I spoke with him in 2015 about his book, Buffalo Bill, Boozers, Brothels, and Bare Knuckle Brawlers. It documents the 1884 Western trip of Evelyn Booth, his buddies, and their time with Buffalo Bill Cody. Cody died in Denver this week in 1917. And that's Colorado Matters for today from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner.